Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Um, this is this is an incredible event, and uh, I just recently, just yesterday, actually had a, a a major sort of for me anyway a major clarification of uh, how to visualize it and understand it, and um, and I want to go back uh, to like before creation and. Um, at the moment of revelation and, 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 and all, all the rest. So, so a lot of sort of big ideas, I think. Um, let, me, let me just start with something that I, that I saw that I, I, I found really surprising and interesting, which is leading up to Mount Sinai, which is the splitting of the Red Sea. So um, the Chassam Sofer, who was one of the greatest rabbis of the, the 19th century, um, and was really a stalwart in terms of... Uh, uh, promoting and defending Torah, uh, uh, he was in, in Hungary and uh, just an awesome, awesome rabbi. And it's funny because he sort of he wasn't a, a chassid, but he so he was sort of like straight, but at the same time he was a total mystic. So his his writings are just replete with uh, with amazing thoughts. And I'm actually new to to, to learning his. Uh, his Torah, but I've just been amazed recently at, at what's there. So, anyway, he's considered one of the all-time greats, the Chassam Sofer. So, I saw this uh, on Shabbos. Let me just share it with you. So, did you ever wonder? Did you ever wonder? And you know something? If you didn't ever wonder, when you hear the question, you're immediately going to wonder. So, that counts as... That, that, so, you can say yes, okay? You can reserve a yes to this question we're about to ask. Did you ever wonder... Why, when the sea split, right, the most awesome open miracle, arguably, the most awesome open miracle ever, the sea split, why the Egyptians chased after them into the split sea, right? I mean, wouldn't you see the sea split and go, okay, you guys, you know what, you just go. You want to go? That's good. We'll just, we're going to go back now. You go wherever you're going, and we're going to go home. We'll just call this a tie, okay? Call it a tie, and that's it. I mean, why on earth would an army with the most awesome revelation of the miraculous hand of God in human affairs, right? Well, actually, the revelation of the Torah is, but this is before then, okay? Why would you enter into that zone as a soldier? Right? Big question, good question. It's a, it seems like, okay, so, and it's not, it wasn't, it seems like a suicide mission, but that wasn't their intention. Like, for instance, just to get slightly academic for a quick second, um, Amalek, sort of the sworn enemy of the Jewish people and, and God, attacked the Jews after the splitting of the Red Sea. And the rabbis explained that their logic was they knew they were going to lose, but they wanted to attack so that the sort of the, the patina, the aura of invincibility that was surrounding the Jews should be immediately smashed. In other words, let's just show that they can still be attacked. But they knew they were going to lose. So the Amalekites, that was a bit of a suicide mission. But they had, you know, they had a goal, and in their own way they accomplished that goal. But in terms of actually winning that fight, they never thought in a zillion years they were going to win that fight. 
But the Egyptians actually thought they were going to win. Now, how could they think that they're going to win going into the middle of the miracle zone? The split sea. All right. So listen to how the Chassam Sofer analyzes this. And he makes it completely logical, their, their, their motivation. He says the following. See, Hashem did a really interesting thing. A really, really interesting thing. Which is, he destroyed Egypt, and destroyed the idols of Egypt, and destroyed everything, and he left one standing on the outskirts of Egypt in the desert where the Jews went. Right before the, 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 the Red Sea, or the Sea of Reeds, whatever it is, the Yamsuf. And that was this idol called Baal Tzaphon. So, there's a lot of Torah on Baal Tzaphon. It's a very interesting thing. Why would God leave one idol standing? So, kind of the, the simple way of explaining it is he, he left an opening for the Egyptians still to have an, an element of free choice. And to say, you see, they could say one of two things. They could say, ah, God has met his match in Balsaphon. Right? God is pretty strong, but Balsaphon is stronger because Balsaphon is still standing after all of this devastation. They could say that, which would be the wrong thing to say, which, by the way, they did say. <laughs> or they could go, while they still had this element of free choice, they could say, God rules the entire world. God rules the entire world. There's still free choice, but you know what? Balsaphon is still standing, but not because it has any power. Not because any idols or any statues or any, you know, subset has any power in and of itself. They could have reached that conclusion, which is what God wanted them to, to reach. You know, but he left, it, he left this element of free choice for them, even after the ten plagues. So now, the Chasm Sofer provides a very remarkable piece of information. He tells us that Baal was the god of the sea. And that Hashem seemingly, because there are certain passages where it says where the word land was used by Moshe. I can't quote it for you this moment. But the Egyptians had an opening to believe that God was the master of land but not at sea. Remember, remember, the astrologers of Egypt said that Moshe was going to die because of water, which is why they threw all of the babies into the Nile River, because they thought that water would be his undoing. You know? So this idea that, that water will be Moses' undoing. And, um, and by the way, you know, remarkably, they, they, were, they were right. They were right and they were wrong. They were right because why does Moshe die, and why does he not go into um, the land of Israel? Because, of, because, he, because when God said to him, speak to the rock and water is going to rush out of it, he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And of course, that's a whole subject in itself. If you remember earlier, um, in, in the beginning of the whole desert experience, of the beginning of the 40 years, God said, hit the rock. Didn't say speak to the rock, he said, hit the rock. And now the second time, 40 years later, God said, speak to the rock. But God also said, take your staff in your hand and speak to the rock. So it's a very, very intricate subject. And everyone, uh, you know, all the Rebbes have lengthy commentaries, you know. Um, it's funny, Rabbi Green, I heard him 
refer to pieces of Torah as there's certain, like uh, musicians, classical musicians, there's certain pieces called virtuoso pieces, which are classic uh, music compositions that allow an artist really to show his, his mastery of the instrument by playing certain pieces. Like, for instance, I don't know anything about Rachmaninoff, but the one thing I do know about him is it's really hard to play on the piano. Apparently, you just have to have like, incredible hands to play Rachmaninoff. So, so that would be an example. You know, you can demonstrate you know, your, your mastery through this. So, so anyway, the, when Moses hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock, that's sort of a virtuoso piece for rabbis throughout the ages to really demonstrate just, just their, through their explanations, like, you know, what they, what they know and new insights they can bring. Anyway, so, so it, it turns out that the Egyptians were, were correct. Water would be Moses' undoing. But they didn't, they didn't have it right. They didn't know how exactly. So, um, and you know something, if you're a fortune teller, and someone is seeking advice from you, if you can just tell them something, but you can't give them the crucial details, it's, it's, not only is it useless, but it's counterproductive. Because, because you could steer an entire army into the river toward their destruction, thinking that it's toward their victory. So the Egyptians thought, now listen to this, this is the part that I like the best. The Egyptians thought that Baal split the sea. Baal split the sea so that they could then go and kill the Jews in the sea. Because that was the area of his mastery in the world. So why did they weren't running into a suicide mission? They weren't insane they thought, finally, this is it. It's all working for us right now. This is our sweet spot, the sea. And Balsafon has shown us how he's created this masterful, miraculous thing for us to succeed right now. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Amazing how you can get it so wrong. So wrong. See, that's... You know, this idea that, that Hashem preserves free choice. You know, I'll give you the other side of this. You want to hear the other side of this? It's, um, see, just as a PS to that, what I love about that is it shows you how normal, really, just basic human logic and emotions could lead you to something that from the outside seems like just irrational, completely irrational. Because even crazy people in the moment, I think, think that they're acting rational. You know, I saw a cartoon in the New Yorker this morning. I just, I love this. It's a, it's a naked man sitting on a branch of a tree. Right? He's sitting in a tree. Right? He's kind of got his legs tucked to his chest and, and he's probably in his 40s, he's wearing glasses, he has sort of an intelligent look on his face, but he's sitting naked on the branch of a tree. And he's talking to a can of peaches, okay, which are on the branch of the tree next to him. That's the only thing in the, in the cartoon. And he's saying to the can of peaches, you know, if you had told me a year ago that I'd be sitting naked in a tree talking to a can of cling peaches and syrup, I would have thought you'd be crazy. And I thought, man, 
That's just great, isn't it? You know, at the height of his craziness, he thinks he's acting rationally. You know? So, someone told me, someone told me, a, a comedy writer years ago, he said, you know something? If a dog ever speaks to me and tells me to do a certain thing, I know I should do the opposite. <laughs> Because whatever a dog is going to instruct me to do is clear evidence that I've lost my mind. I should not do that. I'll do the opposite. So I, I love that he had figured out a system to maintain sanity within the logic of insanity. You know? So, anyway. Um, so let's get, to, let's get to the revelation at Mount Sinai. And again, you know, it's a. Uh, this is an event that that uh, that took place. There's a real thing in the here and now. And we just have to appreciate that. We have to appreciate that that God spoke. You know, I. I I always go back to this because I just I, I love the simplicity of this. I heard Rabbi uh, Solomon of, of Lakewood say that his wife bought a blender and it came with a 32-page set of instructions. And he said, "Is it possible that the world doesn't come with a set of instructions? A blender comes with a set of instructions." You know. And I thought one time to myself, imagine building a, a mansion. For, for someone, as a gift. This elaborate, beautiful mansion, as a gift. And then, not telling them where any of the light switches are. Like, what kind of, what kind of present would that be? You walk in and you're sitting in this, in this dark maze. Because you don't know how to turn on any of the lights? Is it possible that someone would construct something so beautiful and elaborate, and not tell you how to access it? Is it possible? You know, and God, who's communicating to us all of the time. You know, it's, it, I, I once thought of it in another way. You, you say, God who, who created Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and James Joyce and William Shakespeare and Homer and Melville, God who nourished them from a single cell to a masterful artist and writer. The greatest books have been written by them. God, who did all that, God can't write a book. God can only make people who write books. God himself can't author a book. This whole world is a book. This whole world is a book. You know, God is, 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 is speaking out. Well, God, when, when God created the world, and we're going to get into this in a moment, this is really the main thing that I want to share with you. Our, our tradition is that with ten utterances, God created the world. And um, everybody knows that in, in, uh, in just Torah Hashkafa, Torah philosophy, 
Ten is the letter Yud, right? Because it's the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet of the Aleph base. So Yud is ten. And um, we're going to get more deeply into this notion, this correlation between the letter Yud and the number ten and the giving of the Torah and the creation of the world and all of these ideas. But let me begin with something. Because I had, uh, Rabbi Sutton was here uh, over Shabbos, Avram Sutton, and, um, and he, he mentioned something, and it solved a big problem that I had had, a big question that I had had. And so let's, let's put ourselves at, at Mount Sinai, at the time of the Revelation. And if you want to see this for yourself, it's um, in, in the book of Exodus, Sefer Shmos, chapter 19, um, verse 18. And it's talking about it's talking about what was going on right 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 before God uh, said over the Torah, okay. And one of the things that was going on was well, you have to picture it basically. The Jews are are there, um, and also tons of people, like hundreds of thousands, or maybe even over a million people of Egyptians left Egypt with the Jews. Very important to know, because that's a big part of who we are and what we became. There's a mass exodus from Egypt of, of, of Egyptians who came with the Jews to Mount Sinai. Very important point. The, re- the reason why I'm emphasizing it is because people have to understand the universality of Torah. See, a lot of religions, it's either like, you're either with us, or you're damned to hellfire for all eternity. So it's like, choose one. Choose one. And that's not the Jewish view. You know, or there's the, there are other views, which is like, you're either with us, or you're second-class citizens. You're sort of like, you, we can live with you, but you're sort of oppressed by us. That's not the Jewish vision. The Jewish vision is that the Torah is for everyone. That as we're going to go into it more deeply in a moment, that the world itself is made out of the Torah. But we're going to get a new kind of like insight into that in, in a few moments, Hedwa. Um, but that means that, and of course we're all God's children. What, some of us are God's children and some of us aren't God's children? That's ridiculous. God created all of us. We're all God's children. And, okay, so you say, so, but, but, but you're Jewish and these people aren't Jewish. But everyone has mitzvahs in the Torah. The Torah is relevant to all peoples. Everyone has a share in the Torah. So you say, well, you have more mitzvahs in the Torah. Okay, it's true. We have more responsibilities. We have more responsibilities for the fixing of the world. But you want more responsibilities? So join us. There's nothing, there's nothing, no, 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 you can't. So join us. But I mean, it's not like if you become Jewish, now all of a sudden you have a connection to the Torah. You have a connection to the Torah right now. And you're dwelling within the Torah right now. So, so the universality of it is very important. And you see that this key moment, the revelation of the Torah itself, you had, I don't know what the percentages of Jews versus Egyptians were at Mount Sinai. I'd have to do a little calculation. But it, I don't know if it was 50-50, but it was significant. It was significant portions of both. You know, it wasn't like, ah, and there was 2% over here. You know, there was one, there was one point that, I, I, before we get to 
to just the conditions of the revelation, meaning just all the miracles that were happening. I just want to mention one thing that, just to finish the topic about the Red Sea. So on the one hand, you have the Egyptians rushing in. That's, and we just went over the sort of the, 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 the logic behind that, right? But I saw something, a teaching from the rabbis that I thought was very, very, very interesting, which was there were Jews also who were walking through the Red Sea who were worried at that moment. They were worried maybe they're not going to, that the Egyptians are still going to, that, that just like they're crossing through the Red Sea, the Egyptians themselves are going to continue to chase after them. In other words, because what are they supposed to think? They just saw the water open. Are they supposed to think that a brand new miracle is going to be made, that they're going to cross, but the water is going to close on the Egyptians? Why would you logically infer that? I mean, imagine yourself. The sea splits. Wow, the sea splits. That's, that's awesome in itself, right? Now I'm crossing through the sea. Now the Egyptians are behind me. Why am I supposed to think now the water is going to close on them, but not on me? That was a whole separate miracle. By the way, there were tons of miracles amidst the splitting of the sea. And the rabbis saw them. Tons of miracles. And it wasn't just the splitting itself. So, what that says to me is, you see, here you can be in the middle of a miracle, perhaps the greatest miracle ever, and be worried could be worrying while God is in the middle of doing the greatest miracle of all time for you at that moment. Such is the depth of neurosis. <laughs> this is the human condition. This is the human condition. Can you imagine? You know, how many times do people realize while a miracle is being done for them, that a miracle is being done for them. Actually, maybe the minority of the time. Maybe the minority of the time. And the Talmud actually discusses this and says, therefore, someone has to always thank God for whatever is going on in their life. Because that could be one of the moments where God is in the middle of doing a miracle for you and you're just totally stressed out. You know? It's like, it's like, I don't want to be that person. Where a guy goes, remember when I did that thing for you and you were so worried, remember that? It's like, no, don't bring that up, God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, yeah, you're right. I, you're right. I was worried. Yeah, and I guess that was a miracle, wasn't it? That, that was a miracle. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, so anyway... So let's go back to, uh, to, to the moment of revelation. So, okay. So there's a teaching that I love. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's from the, Sefer, from the Sefer Yetzirah. Maybe it's from the Zohar. It's one, of the, one or the other. Um, and, and it says the following. From this word, um, Ashan. Ashan means smoke. And uh, I'll read you the Pusik. Like I said, it's in uh, Shmos, Exodus 19, um, 18. 
All of Mount Sinai was smoking, and it's this word, Ashan, because Hashem had descended upon it in the fire. Its smoke, repeats it again, ascended like the smoke, repeats it again, of the furnace, and the entire mountain shuddered exceedingly. Right, now that's just some of the activity that was going on at Mount Sinai when the Torah was revealed. It was greater than that. There was thunder and there was lightning and this shuddering exceedingly was this massive earthquake and there was the, it was in the middle of the desert but the entire mountain bloomed with flowers and there was a shofar blast that got louder and louder and louder and louder. Remember when a human blows a shofar it gets louder and then softer. This just got louder and louder and louder. So, and there was a fire on the mountain and there was smoke. And that's the description of the smoke. So, lots of amazing, just amazing miracles, okay? Now, now, they say, based on this word smoke, ashan, okay? Now, how do you spell ashan? Ayin, shin, nun. Ashan, smoke. That, that there are three fundamental Aspects to reality. In other words, all of reality can be boiled down to these three things. Okay? Time, space, and soul. And if you think about it, yeah, time, space, and soul. That, that really is. That's, that's, that's all of it. That's it right there. You know, as, a, as an aside, I mentioned yesterday at Dominion, something, something that is very inspiring to me. Although, I think science is actually catching up on this. But, but when science talks about the fundamental components of reality, they talk about the space-time continuum. Time and space. What I think is so inspiring about the Jewish vision is we say time, space, and soul. Because soul is really a crucial dimension to reality. And we, we, we incorporate that as one of the fundamental building blocks. And that's a much more sweeping and expansive and accurate description of reality. Um, and this, is, this teaching is thousands of years old, by the way. So we're way, way ahead of, you know, these modern advances. Um, or modern articulations, I should say. Um, so, Ashan, let's go back to that word, smoke. So, that stands for Olam Shana Nefesh. Olam means world, which means which is space. Okay, Shana is year, but that means time, and Nefesh means soul. Ashan, Olam, Shana, Nefesh, time, space, soul, the fundamental building blocks. Very good, no problems. Except I had a very big problem with that, which is how are you deriving that from the word smoke? <laughs> you know, like okay. Like, if you want to tell me, if you want to tell me that these are the building blocks, I'm with you. But you're telling me that you derive that from the letters of the word smoke at Mount Sinai? Like, now you lost me completely. I'm, like, no longer on board. Like, what is the correlation between that giant concept and smoke? I don't get it. Okay, so now, I had sort of had this lingering question in my mind for years. 
And Rabbi Sutton yesterday was describing the moment of the revelation at Mount Sinai. And all of a sudden it all came together. He said, by the way, he never used the word smoke. But this is what he was talking about. He said when the Torah was revealed at Mount Sinai, he said that there was this, you know, have you ever seen on a super hot day, it's one of my favorite things, you see it also in, uh, in, 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 in westerns, right? When it gets super hot and it's like the air itself ripples, right? Sometimes you see it over uh, a barbecue or something like that. Like there's sort of like this fissures in reality. That's what the Torah is saying. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. That's the... Smoke is an English word, guys. The Torah didn't say the word smoke. The Torah said the word ashan. It's, it's, they're talking, and why does it repeat it three times and talk about the smoke over a furnace? Because the Torah is desperate to communicate this visual, which is that all of reality... Like the fissures within reality, the building blocks of reality themselves were exposing themselves. He referenced the movie The Matrix. That the letters, like those letters, like behind, like superficial reality as we see it, sort of the DNA of reality was exposing itself at the moment of revelation. What, what, do you think, I mean, when they say that there was thunder and there was lightning and there was an earthquake and there were flowers and there was smoke and there was fire and there was a chauffeur blast, what are, what are they saying? They're saying that it was all breaking apart. Everything was breaking apart. It was like electric and dynamic and inspiring and beautiful and awe-inspiring and terrifying. All simultaneously. Reality itself was breaking into pieces. The DNA of creation was being exposed at that moment. Now you say, oh, okay. So when the rabbis derive time, space, and soul from the word Ashan at the moment of the revelation, that ripple effect that we were seeing into, yeah, now I get it. Now I get it. All the building blocks of reality were being exposed at that moment. Yeah. Sure. That makes sense. Okay, so, so why at that moment? Why at that moment? Well, for a very good reason. Because the world is made out of the Torah. One of the most central teachings that you have to know. God looked into the Torah and made the world. God looked into the Torah and made the world. The Torah is the will of God. The, w- the will that God, the desire that God had for the world existed before He made the world. You don't just make a world. God wanted something from this world. God had a desire and an intention for this world. Is it a desire and intention for all of us. Not just, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to like make people and I'm going to make shopping malls. That's going to be excellent. And I'll give them about 80 years. They'll be happy. It's like, no, 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 there's more going on. 
There is more going on here. And it's not, as we've been saying, and I think it's such an important point, just to get to the world, just to get the world back to the way it was before Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge. We're making everything better. We're, make, we're lifting up creation. Okay, so, so I want to get more into this. So it makes sense at the giving of the Torah that the fact that the world is made out of Torah, that God gave us a look inside the fabric of the universe to show us that the words that he's saying, that the commandments that we're receiving, the divine pathways that are being exposed and revealed to us right now, are part of the fabric of the universe itself. That there's nothing more organic than the mitzvot themselves at the time of the giving of the mitzvahs. God allowed us to see that the world is made out of the mitzvahs. It's made out of the letters of the Torah. It's made out of His Word. That's, a, that's, an, awesome, that's an awesome thing He gave us. I mean, it was like, wow, here it is. Here it is. So, so now I want to go into more. Another way of understanding this, and a deeper look into this, and this is my own thought, but um, I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, we've been talking about this Torah from, Rav Shlomo said it in the name of the, he said the deepest Kabbalists, right? And uh, I want to kind of uh, sort of go into it a little bit further, offer maybe another insight into it. That when you know, everybody knows that the first word of the giving of the Torah is Anochi, which means I am, or I exist, or I, literally, right? And um, we said in the name of the Yishvitzer, if you, if you uh, rearrange the letters of Anochi, it's K-Ani. K is a prefix in Hebrew, which means like. Meaning to say that amidst this awesome revelation, this is only like me. This is only just a taste of me, right? Because we know God fills the entire world and exists beyond this world as well. You know, it's not just the world equals God and God equals the world. That's a heretical belief, believe it or not. That's not Judaism. God fills this world and exists beyond this world. Okay. So God says, Anochi, I am. And a lot of Opinions are that that's all God said at Mount Sinai. And that one word contained everything. But there's a deeper, a deeper thought even, which is that God just pronounced the letter Aleph. And the amazing thing is that the letter Aleph is silent. It can't be pronounced. But God pronounced the letter Aleph and contained with that was the entire Torah. Okay? Now, the letter Aleph, as we all know, and it's, uh, you should look it up, uh, what the letter looks like if you can't visualize it. It's composed of three letters. There's a yud on top, and then a, diag- and a diagonal vav in the middle, and then a yud on the bottom. And we said that that really stands for many, many things. Over the last few years, we've gone into many different levels and explanations of what, what, what the Aleph stands for. It's a beautiful study in itself. There's so much Torah contained in what the letter Aleph is. It's, it's awesome. Everyone knows that the letter Aleph, by the way, is the first letter of the 
Aleph Bays. And so in that way, it, 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 it stands for God. Of course, we don't, he's not, God is not in the shape of a letter Aleph. He doesn't have any form. Um, but Kaviyocha, as we say, so to speak, it's a way of sort of diagramming some concepts anyway. Um, so the letter Aleph is one, God is one. We also know that if you add up the letters of Aleph, Yud and Yud and Vav, that adds up to 26, which correlates with the name Yud Ke Vav Ke, Hashem's holiest name, also known as the Tetragrammaton. So there's a lot of connections between Aleph and Hashem. Anyway, so let's go further into this. You see, one of the, one of the questions that people have had throughout the millennia is why is this Parsha called Parsha's Yisra? This is the giving of the Torah. And Yisra wasn't Jewish. And so the giving of the Torah, which is the climactic event in human civilization, is named after someone who wasn't Jewish. Which, if again, if you need a further sort of expression of love that there were all God's children, you know, or uh, the, the honor, the covet that God has for all of creation. You don't have to look further than that. The fact that the giving of the Torah is called Parshish Yisrael. By the way, he does become Jewish. After exploring all the different philosophies and religions of the world, he continued and continued to ask questions until he arrived at the truth of the oneness of God and Torah. Um, by the way, on that subject... And I think this was said, interestingly, by the son of the Chassam Sofer, the Ksav Sofer, a very, a very beautiful teaching about Yisra. It says that Yisra heard and he came to see the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. So all the commentaries want to know, what did he hear? It says he heard and he came. It doesn't say what he heard. So the rabbis explain what he heard was, he heard about the splitting of the Red Sea and the fact that the Amalekites attacked the Jews. That's curious to boil it down to those two things. Because you had, if he heard about the splitting of the Red Sea, he probably heard about the ten plagues in Egypt. Right? So, why the splitting of the Red Sea? Or, why did that make him come? Those two, the splitting of the Red Sea, and the fact that Amalek attacked us, and not the ten plagues, assuming that he heard about those as well. So there's a one-two punch, the splitting of the Red Sea, Amalek attacking. So, and that was a turning point in his life. So the Ksav Sofer says the following. He says that here you had an awesome revelation of godliness, the splitting of the Red Sea. And the Amalekites didn't know how to understand it. And the conclusion that they drew from it is that basically they should attack the Jews. Or put another way, that they had this awesome revelation of godliness and they basically forgot about it or they misused it. And so he said, you know why that happened? Because they didn't have a Rebbe. They didn't have a teacher to tell them to how to channel and properly focus their inspiration. And so when he heard that the sea can split and that you can still have a Malak attack, he says, I need a Rebbe. Because just miracles happening on their own 
is not going to be enough to guide me on the proper path. So that's why it says he heard about the splitting of the Red Sea and Amalek attacking the Jews. The fact that inspiration and revelation can be misused and he came to Moshe. He realized, I need a teacher. Otherwise, I'm never going to make it in this world. So, that's, that's a very strong... We all need a teacher. Everybody needs a teacher. You know? Um, so, but why... So, given the fact, given the fact that this Parsha is, um, is, is named Yisra... By the way, I want to give my own interpretation right now. It's probably been given before, but anyway, it's, it just kind of popped into my head. You know, one of the beautiful things about, um, about Torah, one of the zillions of beautiful things, is that our greatest masters we refer to as Talmidei Chachamim. Um, that's a very honorific title. Everyone would love to be called a Talmud Chacham. And um, what it means, the definition, literally, of a Talmud Chacham is a wise student. And if you think about it, that would be a tremendous insult in, 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 in many uh, schools of thought. That to call your greatest master a wise student, it's like, no, my friend, I am not a student. I am the teacher of students. I am not a student. I am a master. Right? But the Torah view is, no. The greater, you never stop learning. You never stop learning. You remain a student your entire life. And if you stop learning, that's the greatest, that's the greatest proof that you are not a master. If you think that you have arrived, I'm done, I'm there. That's the greatest proof that you haven't arrived. Right? So, so, so the Torah is an ongoing, ever unfolding document higher and higher levels of realization through deeper and deeper study. And it lasts throughout our entire life. And then our soul ascends. And you know what we do? We learn Torah. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. It's just greater, 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 amazing aspects of revelation, of godliness. It never stops. So look how that's being communicated to us. That the fact that the revelation of the Torah is named after Yisra. Who is Yisra? Yisra is the one who never stopped searching. Who never stopped learning. Who mastered every form of Avodah Zorah idol worship and was still not satisfied and said, no, there's got to be more. There's more to this. I know there's more to this. Till he arrives at the truth of existence and he gets to Mount Sinai. Amazing. Amazing. So, so that's an inspiration to us. That we're all Yisro. If we don't consider ourselves Yisro, if we don't consider ourselves students, no matter what level of understanding that we have, then we've missed it. So, okay. So now, you know, there's, there's a system where basically you can see the entire Parsha contained within the name of the Parsha. Okay? But sometimes, you know, you have microcosms within microcosms. Whereas the entire Parsha, the name of the Parsha, is contained within the first letter of the Parsha. 
So, where do you see the giving of the Torah contained within the Yud of Yisra? Alright? So, let's start on a very basic level. We said in the beginning of the talk, Yud is the number ten. And what did God say at Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments. So that, you know, a lot of people would stop there. But we're going to get to before the world started. So, so just put on your, put on your space helmets, <laughs> your jet packs. We're, we're not stopping there. So the most basic level would be, okay, the Yud of Yisro, ten, ten commandments, done. Have a nice week, you know. Okay, wait, wait, don't leave yet. Um, but we said that the letter Aleph, is an upper yud, and then this vav which draws down that upper yud to the lower yud, right? Which is sort of this realm, okay? What else did we say? See, we said that the Torah existed before the world was created. The first letter of the Torah is the letter Bayes. But you know, the letter Bayes, if you kind of draw it, it's got this little part at the bottom of the base that pokes and points behind the base. <laughs> because base, right? Can you picture? You've got the letter base here, and then there's this like thing that points behind the letter base. So what is that doing? That's creation pointing to the creator. That's the letter base pointing to the letter Aleph, the oneness of God, which fills all of creation. So we've got the letter Aleph before the letter Bez. So where is this letter Yud of Yisro from? So what I want to say is the following, that the letter Yud of Parsha's Yisro, it's not just the Ten Commandments, because that contains the entire Torah. It's the upper Yud of the letter Aleph before the Bez of creation. The letter Aleph, the oneness of God that existed before God created the entire world. That upper Yud, that ten, that's the, that's the Torah that God looked into before He created the world. And then what's the lower Yud? Those are the ten utterances of creation. Because God had His plan, the blueprint of creation, that's the upper Yud of the Aleph, before the days of creation. The upper Yud is the plan, that's the Ten Commandments, which contains the entire Torah. And then what does God do? He speaks those ten utterances, which manifests and makes real, makes material His will into the world. And then we have the letter Bays of Breshit. With beginnings, God created the world. So you've got a diagram of the DNA and the process of creation in this letter, Aleph, that's being hinted at by the first letter Bays of the Torah. Did everyone get that? I'll say it one more time. Before the Bays of creation, you have the letter Aleph. Right? That's the oneness of God. Because before, before God created the world, it was just God by Himself. It's God alone. Aleph is the letter one. So, Aleph is composed of an upper Yud, a Vav, and then a lower Yud. What's the upper Vav? What's the upper Yud, rather? That's the Torah. And then God spoke the Torah 
which is the ten utterances that God created the world with. He took his will and he spoke it into existence and he created the world. And now you're ready for the days of Breshi, the beginning of the world. Which means that the entire world is made out of Torah. God spoke the Torah into existence. He spoke his will into existence and he made the world. Now let's get back to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So what happened when God revealed the mitzvahs to us at Mount Sinai? Ashan. All of a sudden, the elements, the building blocks of reality, time, space, and soul, all of a sudden they kind of broke apart to give us an insight that the entire world is made out of Torah. And then God gives the Torah. By doing what? By pronouncing the letter out. Okay, have a good week.